Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, hello. Are you receiving me loud and clear? I am, I am. I am in the US of A. Does that mean we're speaking via the transatlantic telegraph cable? Does it? Probably not these days. I've reversed the charges. <laughs> I've forgotten all about reversing charges. It's so interesting, isn't it? What it was, what it used to be like. I mean, yeah. I always remember as a kid, it would be quite exciting when people would be by satellite on television. They'd say, "So and so joins us by satellite." Ooh, satellite. Yeah. Well, here I am. I've been doing visits on climate and energy and other things. Did you watch any films on the way there? I didn't really. I just did lots of work. Oh, Ed. I know. Did you keep the little bag with a toothbrush in it? No. I don't think I'm a very good traveller. I don't sit back and take advantage of the mod cons. I don't think we'd be very good at taking a transatlantic flight together. I'd be saying, let's do lots of work, and you'd be saying, I want to watch Die Hard 6. The only time we ever travelled together, when we went to Vienna, Yeah. all I remember is you're a very chatty companion. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so, for example, reading a book wouldn't be an option, I don't think, when travelling with you. I always discover these sort of interesting views you have on me, you know, and I never quite know what to make of them. I'll now brood on this for a few days. Maybe you were just giddy back then. It was in the first flushes of our bromance. I think we should move on. So am I right in thinking you're you're there, you're doing an event with Bernie Clifton? (laughs) You've got, I think you've got your wires a bit, I think you've got your telegraph wires a bit crossed. No, I was doing meetings on on climate and energy. I did have a meeting with Bernie Sanders, not Bernie Clifton, as well as people from the administration working on climate and energy. I should say I've been here just to, I think it's just worth saying, I've been here in this week of this awful Texas school shooting. You do sort of feel like in any other country of the world it would suddenly produce change, and in this country it just doesn't. It's really quite depressing. When you talk to Democrats, is there any optimism that this could ever change? It feels like there's been it so many times before that it just, you know, we can remember the names, can't we? Sort of Sandy Hook and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas just feels incredibly intractable. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really here to talk about climate and energy stuff and to learn about the kind of Green New Deal. I mean, there's lots of interesting things, really. I think one thing I hadn't really fully appreciated, I kind of knew this, but from some of what I'd watched... And obviously Biden's legislative agenda is facing a lot of trouble, but the extent to which he has reframed the whole climate and energy cause as being about sort of rebuilding middle class jobs in the US and speaking to economic inequality. And I think it is very interesting. I've seen three administrations, the Democratic administrations, the Clinton administration, the Obama administration, and now this one, the extent to which sort of economic inequality issues and seeking to be bold is very much at the centre of this administration. I've got very enthusiastic about buses while I've been here in terms of electric buses. So they have 450,000 school buses uh, in the US and they're trying to electrify like all of them in seven years. Wow. It's weird when you think that typically they're a long way behind European countries on public transport. And yet those school buses are just ubiquitous. 
We can picture them, can't we? The yellow school buses. Yeah, and you do see them everywhere in the States, where, wherever you travel. Now, I was quite excited. I did... Uh, I had a couple of meetings in the West Wing. <gasps> no, the West Wing of Joe and Jim's diner. <laughs> which is around the corner. <laughs> Honestly, the eggs are incredibly nice there. Uh, and, and when you're in Washington, D.C., do you feel like you're in an episode of the West Wing? Um, or Veep? No, that's more my political life, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think the other thing about this is I'm very struck by the movement of young people around the Green New Deal and there is just this massive energy, I think. Let, let me ask you a question. Where, where you're at an event, like a drinks event, where there are yeah. a lot of young people, do you ever feel like you're ruining it for them? You're ruining the vibe? Um, I know I do. Why? If I'm in a place where there are too many young people, I think they don't want to be looking at a middle-aged person. I'm making this place feel unhip. I need to get out of here. Yeah. The good thing from my point of view is I never would have made it hip when I was a young person. So I had that, <laughs> so I had, so I had that feeling when I was a young person too. Now, should we talk about what we're talking about, which has also got an American theme? It has. This is slightly different to regular episodes. Yeah. What it is, is, is we came across a book that we were both so struck by that we just thought we have to talk to the author here. So it's a special episode. We're delighted to have the chance to welcome our first ever, I believe, Pulitzer Prize winner. Yeah. Andrea Elliott is a journalist and author of the award-winning book Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival and Hope in New York City. And it's just a spectacularly well-drawn piece of immersive writing and it tells a story of homelessness through a child's eyes. And Andrea followed her protagonist, Dasani, for almost a decade. And although the book does cover some really harrowing, bleak issues, it's also, I think, a story of hope and human resilience. And that's why we're both so keen to talk to Andrea. So it's a special episode, a conversation with Andrea Elliott. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, Ed, you might be um, stalking the corridors of power and Joe and Jim's diner in Washington, D.C. The West Wing of Joe and Jim's diner, sorry, just to be accurate. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do they have an oval office? An oval-shaped egg, actually. I'm I'm about to go away on a last-minute holiday. Yes. I was going to ask, where are you going? I'm going to France, but the thing is, I've left it so late. The only place that I could find with availability has this rule that you're not allowed to wear swimming shorts. So I've had to go out and buy myself a pair of Speedos. (laughs) That is... I'm left speechless. Uh, so my reason to be cheerful is at the age of 49, I am about to become a Speedo wearer. How, why have they got that rule? I think it's a hygiene thing. So it said All in right. the confirmation email, for reason of health security, the man's swimming shorts are forbidden. So don't forget to take your Speedo. That's so funny. Yes. That is, that is so funny. Well, just don't send me a picture. What's your reason to be cheerful? Okay, so my reason to be cheerful is I discovered something last night. What is the fastest growing sport in America? Snooker. Nope. Darts. I'll give you a clue. It's something you like to eat combined with ball. Oh, my goodness. Curry ball? Cheese ball? <laughs> what is it? I don't know. What do, what do you like to eat? Sort of savoury? Um, Crumpet ball? You'd, you'd have them as, a, you'd have them as a, an accompaniment. Pickle ball. Pickle ball. Pickle ball. 
What is pickleball? Have you heard of pickleball? I've heard of wiffleball, but not pickleball. It's so interesting. Somebody told me about this last night, that there's this game which is somewhere between... I know you think this is like... It seems like it's made up, but it is not made up. I, I assumed it was not made everything up. everything is, to some extent. Well, no, no, I didn't mean the game is made up, but I mean, I just thought it was like... I just thought it was like an April Fool, that basically it's a cross between tennis and ping-pong. So this is what Wikipedia says. Pickleball is a racket paddle sport that was created by combining elements of several other racket sports. Pickleball was invented in 1965 as a children's backyard game on Bainbridge Island, Washington. In 2022, pickleball was adopted as the official state sport in Washington. Wow. The sport grew during the COVID-19 pandemic as an outdoor alternative to indoor activities. A survey by the sport and fitness industry found a 21% increase. It was named as one of the country's fastest-growing sports with a reported 4.8 million active players. Unbelievable. Who knew? And then there's more, Jeff. When the hard pickleball paddle strikes the hard ball, a sharp popping sound can be produced. The constant sound during play has generated conflict between pickleball court owners and other nearby property owners. An intense backlash in many communities had coincided with the rapid rise in the popularity of pickleball. Residents said they were unable to hold conversations inside their homes due to the noise from the pickleball court. Well, why don't you come out against pickleball? Some kind of moral panic, moral outrage. Do you think it's a good move? Yes, ban it. I think if I want to get down with the young people, I think I need to be pro-pickleball. What have I told you about the young people? Who want you at arm's length? You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. For this episode, we are delighted to have with us the author of the most incredible book. It is just an amazing work of immersive journalism, but it reads like the most compelling narrative fiction to the extent that I've been stealing every available minute away from my family to read it. The book is Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival and Hope in New York City, and its author is Andrea Elliott. Hello. Hi, I'm so delighted to be here. Well, th- thank you. And I, th- I'm, I don't know, Ed, is this the first time we've had a Pulitzer Prize winner with us? Yes, it certainly is. It certainly is. We are honoured. Did you get one for your book, Ed? I can't, I can't I remember. I didn't get one. No, I narrowly missed out. Right. I narrowly missed out. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for rubbing it in, Jeff. <laughs> Where were you when you found out you were a finalist, Andrea? So I didn't. I found out I had won. I was just a f- right before and I was driving in the rain And I got out uh, of my car (laughs) and screamed in joy up at the sky. And because it's New York City, nobody batted an eye. They were like, okay, (laughs) there's just another lady screaming at the sky, whatever. I I feel so grateful that this happened. And it just happened a couple weeks ago. But what I will say also is that the Pulitzer doesn't really mean much in Dasani's world. And she's excited that it won, but she's far more excited that Barack Obama chose this as one of his favorite books. That, to her, was the ultimate prize. And so that's grounding to remember, that this is a big deal for a tiny sliver of humanity. This is Dasani, (laughs) whose story you tell in the book. What was her reaction to that news then about Obama choosing it for his reading list? She jumped up and down screaming like I did. It was her Pulitzer. (laughs) She was so thrilled. I think there were years, I spent almost a decade in her life where nobody thought this book would come out. I did believe it would. It was all I was doing, but it was a long, long path. And so the idea that it would eventually not only come out, but then be 
read and celebrated by him of all people and get the recognition it's gotten and such a wonderful reception in the UK has been our greatest dream come true. Andrea, the book's origins are in a series of stories you wrote for the New York Times. Talk to us, if you would, about what you remember about taking it to your editors back then. What what was your pitch? Yes. So my pitch was the United States, the wealthiest large country in the world, the wealthiest superpower, has the highest child poverty rate. Those are the two facts that I can't quite reconcile. I have to do something about this. And as a journalist, I want to write about one kid to try to get inside what it's like to be among that population of, at the time, it was 16 million American children who were growing up poor. And I kind of cut out the adults from my pitch because of the politics around poverty and the way that those politics can drown out the conversation. Because no matter where you land on the political spectrum, you can't argue that kids, these 16 million children, are to blame for their poverty. So that's, that's how it all began, was to focus on one child and to try to circumvent the judgments that are placed upon adults so easily when it comes to the poor by focusing on the kids. And one of those questions that journalists are told to ask uh, by editors is, is, is why now? And you're talking about a deep systemic problem. Was it a question of finding Dasani and, and it was her specific story that was able to get this, this away? Or was it those statistics you talk about? You know, journalists, and I'm among this group, tend to start out by talking to experts and coming up with checklists of things that make the story new. So I was encouraged to look for the quote-unquote new face of poverty, which was a different demographic profile than the family I wound up choosing. The new face would have been maybe part Latino, like I am, actually. I speak Spanish. My mother's from Chile. It would have been probably a smaller family, hovering on the poverty line, working several part-time jobs, not making it. That is representative of a lot of Americans. By the time I met Dasani standing outside a homeless shelter in Brooklyn, that checklist had just gone out the window. And I'm so grateful it did because what mattered more than anything by then, and I'd been searching for months, was to find a child who could articulate her experience in a profound and moving way and who was creative and, and who drew me in. So Dasani's family was almost a diametrical opposite of what I had been looking for. This is eight children, two parents married, increasingly uncommon among the poor and in America in general. They were chronically poor, chronically homeless. This is a black family in the inner city. But I wound up in a story that at the time, this is 2012, felt extremely urgent and important to me, but was not part of our national conversation in the way that it is now. And what is particularly horrifying about her story, and it's not simply a horrifying story as we'll come on to talk about, is one of the richest countries in the world. A part of Brooklyn that, as I understand it from your book, was gentrifying. So there were extremes of wealth, and in her case, poverty. And the eight children and the two adults are living in basically a single room in this homeless shelter in the worst circumstances with mice and goodness knows what. When I met them, they were living in one room 
all 10 family members crammed into one room. They'd been there for years. New York City provides a legal right to shelter, but that doesn't mean that the city with its $1 billion plus budget wants people to stay in the shelters. And this was a shelter that was very punitive and the conditions were Dickensian. And this was the setting of Dasani's childhood. You know, what I will say about this book is that it's, to my mind, very much a book of hope. Uh, it doesn't seem like it will be when you enter it because the conditions of her life are so depressing. But what I felt all along was that hope was almost like this stealth protagonist waving at me from the background, just pulling me through because it's what defined her life. That even though she could wake up in a room overrun by mice and where there's mold on the walls, this child would pull herself to the window and stare out at the Empire State Building. That was her morning ritual because it, as she put it to me, made me feel like there's something going on out there. And it's that reaching for this other thing that drew me to her, that, that watching her reach and aspire and hope for her life at the same time as she was burdened with horrific things kept me very engaged for years. Dasani's named after the bottled water. Their mother saw this bottled water in a shop in Brooklyn, and she thought, who would pay for water? That's the ultimate sign of luxury. <laughs> I think embedded even just in their names is so much aspiration and a drive, right, to transcend their conditions. When the family are living that life and, and there is that burden you talk about on Dasani, so much energy is expended on, on just survival. How aware do you think the family were of the systemic layers to their situation, the, the injustice of that? So you're absolutely right that when a person is consumed with survival, they are barred, in a sense, from thriving. And I, I wrote a little bit about Abraham Maslow, the American psychologist who came up with the hierarchy of needs, which is often taught as a pyramid. And at the bottom of that pyramid, at the base, you have things like shelter, food, water. You have to have those things in order to reach the next level. And when you can finally get to the top of the pyramid, where the three of us most likely are, is self-actualization, is sense of purpose. You can't reach the top without the things at the bottom. And if you're consumed with meeting the needs at the bottom, you don't have a chance. And at the same time, her mother, who is busy with the what I would call the innovation of being poor. There's a lot of in innovative thinking around surviving, trying to figure out how to put food on the table, was deeply aware of the systems and was constantly educating me in how those systems are really one system. She called it the system. These systems, welfare, public assistance, homeless services, had so much overlap that you could only understand them as one system. And she was very aware of the injustice. And I think that's an important thing to know about people in her position, the poor, is that they are not just trudging through, that they are onto it, that they know, they can see it, and they feel unheard, and they feel that it's unseen, but they are constantly aware of it. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Talk to us about how you built the relationship with Dasani that enabled you to not just write the original articles, but then write this whole book about her life. Because it's quite a, I don't mean this critically, but it's obviously an intrusive thing to do in one sense. Oh, yes. Our relationship unfolded over many years and it changed depending on the circumstances. It deepened grew distant. It was a complex relationship like most relationships are. My first meeting with Dasani was in a park uh, after seeing them walking out of the, the homeless shelter and giving them my card. But the gatekeeper was her mother, Chanel, of course, as a parent. And Chanel said to me eventually, you know, if you weren't a mother, I would never have let you near my children. And that shows you how personal the criteria is, right? Like you think you're coming in as a professional, as a journalist, you read my work, you decide that I'm worth giving a chance. But actually for Chanel, there was another thing at play, which was who is she as a human being? Did they ultimately trust me 100%? I try to push back on that notion by saying that I don't think of trust as a destination. I think of it as a work in progress. It's not something you arrive at and you have and it's done. It is a constant conversation. The things that helped were, I think, my openness to talking about the difference between my life and hers and my willingness to hear and to receive and to take in a lot of understandable rage. Sometimes directed at me because of my skin color. I'm white, she's black. But also the fact that I was a little different, the fact that I'm a hybrid, I identify as Chilean-American, my mother's from Chile. She would hear me arguing with my mother in Spanish on the phone. 
She loved that. But nothing matters as much as just my presence and my continued uh, commitment to showing up because so many people didn't in their lives. This, this was a very unstable life. It is to be poor. It is a life of interruptions. Your phone is cut off. Your address changes. Your school changes. People come and go. And there's so little continuity. And the fact that I stubbornly kept showing up probably did more than anything else to keep me in their lives. And you have two daughters yourself, I think I'm right in saying. I do. Is there a relationship with them and her or how does it work? Yes, I did want our children to know each other. And it was important to me because I felt that I owed that to Chanel. I was spending so much time with her kids. And so we would get them together from time to time. And over the years, my children are now 10 and 13. They really grew up with this book. And they have formed a bond with Dasani and her siblings. And it's a special bond. I think that it's not uncomplicated. I mean, imagine growing up with your mother constantly disappearing to write about another little girl, <laughs> you know, so I think they were jealous at times, but they loved Dasani. What do you think the family's expectations were? Was it uh, around, as we might think, raising uh, awareness on their situation and, and the issues around it? Or was it something different? Going in, I was a staff reporter for the New York Times and I had to explain my rules of engagement really clearly so they understood that we do not pay people for their stories, that I am here to expose something that I believe is unjust, which is the way they were living. But also, we sort of had a shared enemy in a sense, right? It, we had the shared purpose, which was to expose the conditions of their shelter. Then it turned into a book. And while the rules remained the same, I did feel it was important as the years passed in my mind to work out a solution should this book succeed that would benefit the family. But I didn't tell them that until after the book was finished because I wanted to make sure that they continued to participate in the book from this shared sense of values and truly a voluntary position of agency where they'd chosen to be in this book, not because they felt there was some windfall coming or any such thing. Now that the book is complete, I've made clear to them that I will share in any proceeds. And they are very happy about that. And they're thrilled with the prizes. I, I did give the Pulitzer money to them. <laughs> that, I think that mattered more to them than the Pulitzer. They, could, they really didn't care about the Pulitzer. But the $15,000 will be put to good use by the family, I think. And, you know, I think that that's a very, very important thing. It's a complicated act to enter into the vulnerable community, to write the story of that community, and then to come out professionally better off because of it. And I honestly, I struggle with it. I do. It was the privilege of my life to follow their lives. It was an incredible education. With something like that Pulitzer Prize money or the donations that flooded in from New York Times readers or the trust that you're able to set up to help Dasani and her siblings with tuition fees... There was maybe some conflict in, in your mind about your role as a journalist, as an observer and a storyteller, and somebody who is then sort of materially influencing the direction of the story. The New York Times ran a five-part series. It got a lot of attention. It meant that things would change for Dasani, either materially or at least psychologically, right? To be on the front page of, the, of a global 
media publication for five days in a row would be a life-changing event for anyone, not to mention a child living in obscurity like she was. Bill de Blasio invited Dasani to stand on his inaugural stage. She held the Bible for the incoming public advocate. It was a moment. She became kind of like the city's celebrated child in that moment. And so I expected to write about it a lot more than I wound up having to write about it because so little changed. Why did so little change? Well, for one thing, Legal Aid, which is a nonprofit, set up uh, a trust and readers gave donations to the trust and the family was given a choice. Give up your public benefits and take this money. It wasn't a huge amount, but it probably would have made a significant difference in their lives. Or keep your benefits, and this money will go towards college one day, to the future. And the family chose to do that. They said, we're going to stay in our lives. This money will be saved for the future. Every once in a while, the trust would donate like in little ways with clothes or stuff. But I think that's a really important point to make because there is this assumption among people that poor folks really just want it easy or that they're just looking for the easy way out, that, that a windfall will come and they'll grab it. What did my presence do? How did my presence impact events? I can't tell you what would have happened was I not there. I can tell you a lot about what happened when I was there. For one thing, I was in a predominantly Black community a lot of the time as a white person. And being white in that community is is a, an education. My skin color was a, a true education because what you find is that you you are cause for alarm. You are the, the the reason people will be scared because the presence of a white person, as Chanel often said, was was a sign that something had gone wrong in the projects. If a white person was there, it's because someone's kids were about to be taken away, or someone was about to be evicted, or maybe someone was ill. I spent enough time with them that I became familiar to people enough that they stopped seeing me that way entirely. I would never take from the good things that happened to Dasani in terms of her own agency and what she made possible. And she doesn't believe that my presence made those good things happen. You've talked a lot about the effect that all of this had on Dasani without giving away what's in the book. What about at the structural level? What's changed in a decade? So one one thing I'll say is after the series ran, the city did shut down the Auburn shelter and another shelter, and they moved 400 children out of those shelters. And that was a reminder to me and a wonderful sign to Dasani and her family that one person's story can affect change. But so little has changed. What I would call attention to is that while the homeless crisis continues, and we still have more than 50,000 people in the homeless shelters in New York City alone, what we saw with the pandemic was a chance to try something that was for the United States radical, but not for European countries, which happened through pandemic relief aid, which was a basic child allowance that was given to families the child tax credit. And that kicked in for a number of months. It lifted more than 3 million children out of poverty while it lasted. But there's a lack of political willpower. And so it is currently on pause. And that's 
that's quite depressing, frankly, because I thought that was a, an example of a of a policy solution that I think would have made for a very different life had it been in place when I met Dasani for her. The, the safety net in the United States is weak. And I think that this story, her struggles in poverty show that very clearly, how not just how weak the safety net is, but also how things like structural racism play out on the ground day to day in the life of this family. You trace back the history of Dasani's family and the way structural disadvantage was was built in. Perhaps you could say something about that. Yes. Dasani's ancestors uh, were enslaved in North Carolina. The book traces that lineage to one of her great-great-great-grandfathers who I was able to determine was separated from his sister, Charity. They were both young children at this time because of slavery. And this was typical that families were broken up. And this is something that Dasani's parents kept saying to me, that the past is not the past. We're still seeing our families broken up. I would argue that a lot of this happened in the 50s with what happened to her great-grandfather, who should have as a decorated war veteran, had every benefit available to him that white veterans had who were able to move to the suburbs, and yet he couldn't. He was stuck in the projects. He was stuck working as a janitor rather than in his chosen profession because labor unions were closed. The roots of her poverty are there. They go back further, obviously, but you can concretely see that the barriers he faced, the inability to vote, the inability to go to college, the inability to be a homeowner, lay the foundations for this lasting poverty that she would inherit. Something that keeps keeps coming up, I think, in this conversation is that the layers you're able to peel back and the way you're able to shed light on this situation is because of the amount of time that you were able to spend immersing yourself yeah. in Dasani's story. Now, the New York Times is, is probably one of a, a handful of outlets that are able to provide that kind of resource. When you look at how journalism has changed just in the decade since you began working on this, how optimistic do you feel about the ability to tell these kinds of stories in this kind of depth in the future? So I think we continue to have a real crisis in journalism uh, that I would connect to the downfall of local reporting, that there are only a handful of major outlets that can invest in this very, very needed work. But this work was built on, at least for me, I will say, I learned what I learned as a shoe leather reporter (laughs) in doing street reporting, doing night crime and courts, very hyper-local stuff. And that's how I learned what I did. Any journalist can carve out time to do this deeper work. And you kind of have to... Uh, you have to fight for it. And I did that at the Miami Herald when I was still on the night cop shift. I would go out in the weekends and I didn't have kids then. So there's that. But I spent all my free time doing enterprise and more ambitious stuff. And then I'd write it and then I'd give it to them. They ran with it. I didn't get paid extra for it. I was on salary, but that's how I found a leg up. So I do think there's a way in which we have to work around our limits to reach for this kind of work because it's so important. Let's end, and you've already given us a hint of this. This book obviously covers some really difficult and deeply depressing circumstances. 
uh, and it's called Poverty Survival, but it's also called And Hope in New York City. Talk to us a little bit further about the hope aspect of this, where you found the hope in the writing of this story and where you find the hope now. I wouldn't have stuck it out for nearly a decade with this family. I don't think I would have survived emotionally were my experience not defined by things like laughter, hope, just the electrical current of them. They're, they were the most fascinating people I'd ever written about. And I felt excited to be around them. You can feel that current as you're reading it, that pulse. The, the hope lies within Dasani. It lies within children and families. I will say that we have this narrative that I've come to question about escaping poverty as being the answer, escaping the neighborhood, escaping the community, getting out rather than investing in, rather than keeping children with their parents unified and investing in the family as an asset rather than seeing the parents as a deterrent. I think the hope is there. And do you think you'll stay in touch with Dasani? I'm in touch with her almost every day. <laughs> right. I do hope that we will always be in each other's lives. This is an unusual relationship. It's not the typical thing. And even in shorter stints with people, I've tended to stay in their lives. That's just the way I am. Andrea Elliott, the, the book is Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival and Hope in New York City. It's a great book and it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. So great to talk to you both. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Oh, we're in the outro. I have an email here that I think will pique your interest. Oh, go on, yes. It comes from Kerry P, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. Hi. Hi. I was very excited to hear on this week's episode that you're planning more live dates. Please come and do a show in the Midlands. We'd love to, wouldn't we? Yeah, definitely. We're very excited uh, about the London show, which is on the 17th of July at King's Place, Sunday afternoon. We'd love for you to come to that. And then I, I hope in the autumn we're, we're going to be out and about doing plenty more. Yeah, definitely. In fact, if you have somewhere to suggest a good place for us to come and visit, then let us know about it. Maybe the West Wing of Joan Jim's Diner. Kerry adds, Birmingham and Worcester are both lovely at this time of year. Also, I thought Ed might like to know that storks in southern England are a thing, so you never ah. know. Maybe that is what you saw. Ah. And then Kerry includes a link to the White Stork Project. Well, let me have a look. Which is uh, a group of nature conservation organisations and private landowners working together to help the white stork return home to southeast England. You see, I think this is what I saw, basically. Do you think that maybe the stork was attracted to you and you could be key in getting the species to return to the south of England? You think I'm a stork whisperer? Yes, exactly that. Listen to this. It says, these large birds, symbolic of rebirth, are native to the British Isles, whilst it's unclear why this spectacular and sociable bird, I think um, those are both adjectives that could be applied to you too, uh, failed to survive in Britain, it's likely to be a combination, um, but a contributory factor may be that it was persecuted during the English Civil War for being associated with rebellion. Gosh. Why was it persecuted? It was seen as a rabble-rouser, a, a trouble-causer. That seems so bizarre. 
we should find out more about the persecution of storks. Right. Well, if our listeners have any thoughts on that, cheerfulpodcast.com, they know where to find us. Or anything else, stork or otherwise. Yep. Should we thank our guest? Yes. Thank you to the brilliant Andrea Elliott. The book is Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival and Hope in New York City. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Rachel is supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dents. Our music was composed by Ed Seed and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been hanging around the West Wing. He's been about to swim in a G-string. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 